Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hansen. Twists and turns, red herrings and mistaken identities. Are we talking about a mystery or a romance or both? While mysteries keep us on our toes, propelling us towards uncovering the truth, romance narratives also play with the tension of the unknown. The difference is we usually know the who in a romance, just not the how. It is tension of a different kind, but a tantalizingly complimentary one. We are lucky to be joined in this episode by a master of convoluted mystery and heartening romance, Freya Mask, to talk to us about the feelings and frame-ups. Not only does she put her lovers through the ringer, she forces them to solve confounding conundrums in a historical fantasy setting. So Freya, thank you for being with us. And would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, thank you for having me on. So I am Freya Musk and I'm a writer of what I describe as science fiction and fantasy books with kissing. So as you've said at the moment, the two books that I have out are historical fantasy with a very strong romance plot and also mystery plots. I don't know how I managed to get away with taking something from all of the genre baskets, but it's working well for me so far. Yeah, it it works very well. I haven't yet managed to pick up the second book, but uh, I really, really loved A Marvelous Light. So uh, yeah, got me all in the feels and I read it over like Christmas. So I'm actually excited to do kind of the same thing. You're going to have to get out one every year now because it's becoming my new habit, my new tradition for Christmas. I'm going to read one of your books. I I I love being the book that people curl up with on Christmas day. I think that's, you know, a perfect time to sit down with a new book and know that you have the space to just read interrupted unless of course you just have to nap off lunch (laughs) and then you can wake up and read some more which is usually what my Christmas days look like yeah and luckily I do have the third book in the series coming out a similar time next year sometime in November perfect so you'll be able to use it for your Christmas book again Yes. All right. But no, you're just going to have to keep, keep this, uh, uh, <laughs> schedule up. Keep All right. Pace up. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no pressure. I have expectations now. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about, you know, you, you're using historical setting and then you're also putting in queer romances, which is not really quite what we would come to expect. Why did you want to do that? Well, for me, it came down to what genre I was writing in. And I knew that I had to choose, do I want my books in the bookshelf to be on the fantasy shelf or the romance shelf? I had been told this in no uncertain terms by my agent after my first novel refused to pick a shelf and so did not sell. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I want to have the career predominantly of a fantasy writer. So I knew I was writing fantasy and why it was historical fantasy was just, that was the genre, the subgenre that I wanted to write. I didn't want to write urban fantasy set in a contemporary world for this particular series. I didn't want it to be secondary world. I definitely wanted it to be the kind of fantasy that's layered underneath the real world. And so it was when you're writing that kind of fantasy, you either go urban or contemporary or you go historical. So I knew that that was the genre I was writing in. Uh, And as much as I love historical romances that don't have fantasy elements, I also wasn't writing that. 
So it was bang historical fantasy is what I'm writing. Uh, and I also knew that I wanted each book to have its own queer romance, even though there is a fantasy plot that goes across the entire trilogy. So it just came down to this is the shape of the stories that I'm telling. This is how I fit them together in the books. Why I chose the Edwardian setting is a little bit more shallow. That's basically because I knew book two was going to be on an ocean liner around the time of the Titanic. And the shape of A Marvelous Light, the kind of story I was telling there, although it became very rooted in the Edwardian time in terms of the aesthetic and what was going on, and the third book has become very rooted in the Edwardian politics, the whole choice was made because I wanted book two to be on a boat. So where is the crossover where is the crossover point, rather, for fantasy that has some romance in it and romance that has some fantasy in it? Because you've obviously thought very carefully about where your book is going on the shelf. So is there a very careful dividing line that makes a book fall definitely into fantasy rather than romance and vice versa? Uh, short answer, no. It is a little bit subjective. It depends on, like, a lot of the trappings of genre are things like how long is the book? How intense is the world building in the book? The commonly said shorthand is something is romance if if you remove the romance plot from it, the entire book falls apart. So if there was no romance plot in A Marvelous Light, technically you could still have the book. The plot, the fantasy plot, the conspiracy, you could do it with a friendship rather than a romance. And the predominant plot is still investigating a magical conspiracy rather than two people falling in love. The reason it could go on a romance shelf technically and the reason it has been listed on romance book lists and won a romance industry award is because I am still following all the conventions of the romance genre at the same time. It has all the beats of a romance plot. It has the happy ending or a happy for now of a romance plot, but it is in the shape of things more a fantasy novel than a romance novel. That said, there are a lot of books out there, especially I think in the self-published realms, that blur that boundary a lot. There are some amazing self-published fantasy romance that have incredibly convoluted political plots, very strong world building, but they are being sold in the romance sphere. So sometimes it is just the marketing, but you need to be able to look at a book and say, here are the reasons why it's on this shelf and not this shelf. And that just comes down to the nature of the publishing industry. Why specifically did you want to do queer romance <laughs> the thing is like it feels like it fits very much into the things that i am really loving at the moment like some of my favorite books through the recent few years have been like a marvelous light jasmine throne the house in the cerulean sea winter's orbit you know and they they all feel like they're coming out at around the same time like they've managed to just obviously because you know, books in publishing are sort of in the pipeline years before they actually come out. And then all of them, they sort of come, started coming out at the same time. And I was like, oh my God, well, this is great because I'm loving it. And yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just curious, you know, why did you want to to have that, the, the romance in, in the novels be queer romances? Essentially, I write queer romance because that's what I enjoy reading. And because as a queer person, I want to put more of those stories into the world. So the stories of queer happy endings and love and family. And I think the reason that there's just been this perceived rush of them recently is you're right. Like it's all, everything happens in publishing on a delay. And I think they just reached this tipping point of there being enough queer people or people who are interested in promoting queer voices 
in publishing, so along the agency and the uh, editing and the acquiring side, finally there were enough people going, yes, this is something we want to do. And those books suddenly started being acquired. And once one or two had made it very big, publishing, being famously risk-averse, could then look at them and say, oh, this is like The House in the Cerulean Sea, or this is like Gideon the Ninth, and say, okay, there is a market out there for this. I think YA was probably doing it a little bit earlier, which tends to happen. I think boundaries and norms get pushed a little bit quicker in YA. But yeah, I think it was just once there were a couple of big titles and there was a, a shown market, publishing was then prepared to keep keep taking the risk. Uh, and yeah, I think we're in an amazing time of publication of queer fantasy and queer sci-fi and queer romance at the moment. You said you write queer fantasy because you enjoy reading it. And obviously, when you're writing something historical, you've got to research all the stuff that goes on at the time, books that are read at the time, customs, conventions, all that kind of thing. So as part of that, did you do much research into queer romances at the time that you're writing in? And if so, what sort of things did you find that you think might surprise people about queer people in that time period? So my terrible shameful secret is that I am a lot less researchy than many historical writers. So basically it's because I come from this fantasy background where the default is, if you don't know, make it up. And I know you can't do that in historical fiction, but it does mean that I have a, a less of a tendency to go down very deep rabbit holes and obsess over extremely fine detail. I research what I need. I research background so that I have a, a handle on the time I'm writing in, but I don't go looking for details just for the sake of throwing them in. That said, <laughs> my favourite bit of queer history that I found when I was researching for A Restless Truth, I actually found because I was researching women in the theatre in the 1900s in New York because Violet, one of the two main characters of A Restless Truth, has just spent three years working on the stage in New York in the early 1900s. And I loved this piece of trivia or this person so much that I actually put a reference to her in A Restless Truth. The actress Maud Adams was the woman who originated the role of Peter Pan on Broadway. So not in London, but in New York. And she was almost definitely a lesbian. And so I read her entire Wikipedia page and did a bit of research on her life uh, just because I wanted to find out what kind of person she was. And she sounds like she was a very, very lauded actress. She had two long-term relationships with women, no relationships with men. And so I let Violet have a little fling of self-discovery with Maud Adams, even though at the, at the time the real Maud Adams had just started what would be a lifelong relationship with Louise Boynton, who had been a newspaper editor and was now her personal secretary and lifelong companion. And I threw her in because partially I just wanted people to know her name and partially because I liked the idea that someone had been for Violet, what Violet would be for Maud, the other main character, in terms of sexual discovery and and the fact that this person was also called Maud was just a really nice historical coincidence. You didn't get any pushback from readers going, oh, now that's absolutely wrong there, Freya. What really happened was... Somewhere out there, the, the official biographer of Maud Adams is going, no, that never happened. Uh, and that person is very welcome to write me a stern email if they wish. Okay. The thing I'm curious about is as you say, you're not like super researchy, but as, as we all know, like the, the time period you're writing in, you know, the Edwardian period, being queer was not something you could be out and proud about um, mm. as a general rule. 
Like obviously, okay, so you said you wanted to have that period because of the Titanic. Yes. (laughs) So how did you then go about like trying to write a historical setting while still having what are quite lovely queer romances in a time when, you know, that was something very, very difficult. Even if it is, you know, fantasy and you're not being very strict with it, it still seems like a a trickier thing to do. Thankfully, I think we've we've moved past it, but you know, when you used to get lots of stories with queer romances and they were just really tragic and everyone died or everyone was miserable and, you know, it was just horrendous. Um, you've now managed to give us some lovely, heartwarming queer romances in in a period where we don't, you know, historically see those kinds of things. So how did you go about trying to mix the the reality of that with with something a bit nicer (laughs) yeah i mean you're right it does feel it feels a bit like getting away with something because you're showing a romance with a happy ending and in my case i was showing characters who haven't got a great deal of angst about their sexuality like i wasn't really interested in telling stories about people wrestling with the fact that they have a sexuality that is frowned upon or has to be hidden. I think it's part of their realities, but because I was embedding them into a larger plot, I wasn't going to sit down and, you know, pages and pages of them angsting about this. That wasn't really going to be where the internal conflict of any of the romances was. And so showing that kind of romance is an act of defiance to say that, yes, people like us existed in these time periods and, yes, we were happy. We managed to find one another. We managed to have fulfilling lives and fulfilling romances. As a writer, you're right in that writing things set in time periods where open homosexuality or bisexuality or any gender variance was frowned upon, it means that some tropes of romance are closed off to you. So you're unlikely to be able to write a big public gesture of affection or devotion, for example, or the fake dating trope, you know, you can't exactly do that. But it does mean that once your characters have established the knowledge of a shared identity, there is an immediate sort of intimacy of simply existing with that identity in that time. And it means that when you're writing a romance, it is by nature more enclosed and intimate. It's, you know, forget the rest of the world and what they think. This is about what we mean to one another. And so the romances are quite tight and can happen in quite a small emotional space, which I suppose sounds bad, but it means that you have to put your two people together and they have to stay together. I I like, I like the, that enforced intimacy of shared experience when you're getting a a starting point for a romance. As a reader, I really like reading queer historical romances because of the different ways in which authors play with this tension of intimacy and how do you fit into your world and your context? I think Natasha Pulley does really nice historical romances. I mean, they are they are romances. They are shelved in the literary section, but they are usually a romance and often with some kind of speculative element. And I think she does the interplay between societal pressures and expectations and personal identity and romance really nicely. But I also do enjoy in romances seeing how people interact with their friends and their family. And so it was important to me in writing this series to also have this queer found family or ensemble friendship group aspect. So it allows each romance to exist in a community space. 
just a second that shout out to Natasha Pulley, whose books I absolutely adore. And we were lucky enough to have Natasha on the show. So if anyone listening has not checked out our Magical Realism episode with Natasha, it is in the archives. Going back a little bit in the conversation, I was really interested, Rowan, what you said about how you layered your fantasy underneath the real world. So given that you're dealing with history, which has been documented, I mean, how much history did you have to bend to work in your fantasy? And were there any sort of historical facts or customs that you went, oh, yeah, I can totally put that into my fantasy and I can turn it around and turn it on its head? Well, because the fantasy is hidden, It wasn't like I was writing an entirely alternate world where magic is out in the open. And obviously I think any kind of world building that you do with that does involve quite a lot of changes. So technically I'm writing historical fiction that is meant to be accurate apart from the existence of the magic underneath. But you're right, I'm writing historical fantasy. And look, this is a personal belief and there may be purists out there who disagree. But I believe that if you are writing in a genre that is fantasy. It already means I am changing to some extent the details of what happened. So I'd allow myself what I think of as about a five to 10% anachronism budget. Uh, And that means that if I need to massage a detail or bring in a word that maybe wasn't quite in use yet, if it serves character, if it serves plot, or if it serves romance in a way that I need and in a way that I think fits with the overall tone of the book then I let myself do that. So if I was writing pure historical fiction, I probably would not be able to get away with that. But I try to be a bit relaxed about it. And if people want to write angry emails, that's okay. I totally agree. As a reader of both historical fiction and fantasy historical things, you do, as a reader, give a lot of leeway to the authors. It's like I'm reading Hilary Mantel's uh, The Mirror and the Light, and I'm just assuming that everything in that is gospel, and I'll be very unhappy if Mantel's putting anything that's wrong. (laughs) But if there's any sort of slight twist or slight alternative reality as a reader, I'm definitely more willing to go, yeah, right, fair enough then. (laughs) Yeah, and part of the fun has been even though I'm not researching intensively, finding interesting bits in research and thinking, okay, how does this reflect what I'm doing with my fantasy plot? So looking at, for example, like the politics of the time, which I didn't know a great deal about when I was writing book one, like I did a bit of research about, you know, what was happening in terms of classes and the social structure, but I didn't do a great deal of looking into like what was actually happening in Westminster in the politics But because of the nature of what book three is doing, the characters that I'm using and the discussions they're having and the themes that are starting to emerge about power and power disparity, I did actually do a bit more research into the politics of the time. And I have a scene in book three that takes place in the Houses of Parliament and reflects what was actually going on in terms of the preoccupations of Parliament at the time, which I never expected to put in my fantasy trilogy when I was writing book one, but it it fits there because of what the theme of the book is doing. And it was a lot of fun to research and then write. Both your novels um, in the Last Binding series, they so far deal with uh, twisty conspiracies. So we wanted to know why are conspiracies or mysteries such compelling companions, like a companion plot to, to romance plots? It's because it's a group project. And group projects are gold when it comes to romance. You've got to have something to do together, something that forces you into proximity and says, work together to solve this problem. Uh, And if you are confronted with a conspiracy, 
So in A Marvelous Night, it is where has Robin's predecessor gone? Why is there suddenly somebody new in this role? Uh, And in A Restless Truth, it is much more of a straightforward, someone has been murdered. Once you have your mystery or your conspiracy, you've got something that you have to do together. So there's a lot of conversations, you have to work, you get to know the person quite quickly. Uh, And conspiracies come with this bonus extra caramel topping of secrets and suspicion. So if you don't know who is involved in a thing or a plot, what's going on, can you entirely trust this inconveniently attractive person you have been forced to do this group project with? It adds extra layers of tension and doubt that make for really good, chewy internal conflict that drives the romance forward. I love that you called it a group project. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, if you can do a group project with someone and come out the other side still attracted to them and thinking, yes, I want to spend more time with this person, they're probably your soulmate. Yeah. I say, as somebody who had to suffer through terrible group projects at university. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like everyone has that trauma. Uh Uh, but like when it comes to plotting mysteries, that can be quite a convoluted process and involve a lot of like pre-planning. And I mean, personally speaking, I'm like a massive pantser when it comes to writing. So the idea of writing um, a mystery terrifies me. So um, I wanted to know how how do you do that? Because you're not just writing a mystery, you're also writing a romance plot. Um, do they help each other out? You know, how do you go about juggling them both? They do help each other, but before you can make them help each other, you have to create them individually to some extent. So the idea of sitting down to a blank page and just think, being like, let's see how the book goes is absolutely terrifying to me. I have to plan. Uh, Even if I'm writing something that doesn't have a convoluted plot per se, I have to sit down and do an outline. So I don't mind doing the planning. It is a bit of a headache. I have to go for lots of long walks. Uh, And occasionally I will just give up and write in brackets, planning the heist goes here, which I did to myself twice in book three, and then hit that part in the drafting process and went, God damn it, what was I thinking? Time for a long walk. But I think once you have sat down and said, okay, I have to plan these things, you can then at least do the planning in the knowledge that you have both a mystery plot to fit together and a romance plot to fit together. And they do feed into each other. So you have that group project forced proximity of solving a mystery for your characters. And then you can feed that romance and that mystery into one another at various points through the book as needed to make the beats work and to make the pacing work. So if you have a deadly peril or a narrow escape from deadly peril, great. That's a really good catalyst for what we call in the romance industry, danger makeouts. And Marvelous Light definitely did that. I had a very dangerous action scene right at the midpoint that then allowed to lead into the first kiss and then the first sex scene. Uncovering secrets about the past, which echo your own situation and make you feel like seizing the moment, which is what I did in A Restless Truth. Another great catalyst for overriding the doubts that you might have uh, and leading into precipitating a romance. And then going the other way, you can use the romance beats to create tension for the mystery plot or to determine where your characters are in relation to one another, both physically and emotionally, when they are doing certain plot things. So in A Marvelous Night, I had the big breakup in quotation marks happen so that when the crisis of the 
mystery and fantasy plot hit, they would be apart, not together. So one of them could be endangered, the other one could have to find out where they are. And in A Restless Truth, I didn't want that. I wanted them to be together for the climax. So I had to time the fights and the getting back togethers and the where are we emotionally to one another slightly differently around the action beats. So depending on the type of story you're writing, you're not going to always fit everything into the same place. And I think the the good thing about romance beats is that they're they're thought of as formulaic, but there is so much stretch and flexibility and ability to move things around within the usual romance beats that you can just tug bits apart and fit that bit over the scaffolding of of the fantasy or of the mystery uh, and you can condense other bits that need to happen. So for me, it felt quite intuitive. It was very fiddly and did take a long time, but it's really satisfying when you can make those two things start to feed into one another, bounce off each other uh, and enhance the tension of one another. Speaking as someone who's ghost-written mysteries, I get where you're coming from with the beats kind of feeding into each other and having romance beats and mystery beats kind of coming along side by side and one happens and the other happens and whatever. And you're talking about timing the fights as well. That sounds like an awful lot of internal planning, but how much of it is done before you actually start writing and how much is kind of done on the hoof as it were? Because I mean, Agatha Christie is the most famous mystery writer and was quoted as saying, well, even I don't know who's done it when I start the book. So how much of it was very definitely, yes, so here's my beat and there's my beat and ticking off in a tick box and how much it was just like, oh, well, now I'm here. I think I might do this. And did you have an idea at the end as to, you know, how the mystery resolved itself or did that kind of become organic as the the process went on? Oh, no, I had to know everything to begin with. Like I, I cannot fathom how somebody starts writing a mystery without I know. knowing who did it <laughs> and exactly how it worked. Like, no, that, 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 no. Who <laughs> so, does that? <laughs> who does that? Exactly. So from the mystery side of things, I have to know exactly everything. And I, like when I start writing a book, the first words go onto the first page. I have already done a complete outline of the beats. I know pretty much, pretty much usually I know exactly how many scenes there are going to be and what happens more or less in those scenes. Like I do a lot of outlining before I start writing a book. I do still do a lot of improvising. Obviously, you can't plan a book completely granularly before you start writing or you've just written the book. Uh, The kind of things that I like to surprise myself with are exactly how a character is going to get themselves out of a situation or solve something. Uh, So I will lay a lot of random breadcrumbs in the first half that are usually world-building things. So world-building is something that I do more or less on the fly. And if I just drop in a detail or think of something mid-sentence, then I go, oh, that's a nice little detail about the magical world. Let's throw that in. Or that's a nice spell I haven't used. Let's throw that in. And then when it gets to the latter half and I'm faced with past Freya's terrible deeds, like writing plan a heist or somehow they escape in brackets, hopefully at that point I have laid myself enough tools and breadcrumbs in the first half of the book that I can look back and say, what can I use? Because it's always more satisfying if you're using something that's come up in the book before rather than just pulling something entirely new out of your pocket and saying, oh, well, we had this solution all along. You just didn't know about it. And sometimes you have to do that and then go back and put the breadcrumb in in edits. So it looks like you were planning this all along. So fine details of how the plot happens. I don't mind improvising as I go, but the big beats of who did the murder, when will we discover that? 
when will these people get together? When will they have a fight? Those things I do have to know in advance and I plan really carefully. I got my microphone on mute, but I laughed out loud so hard when you said that you just have in brackets, they escape, because that is so much how I tend to write as well. I will plot it all out and then I get to a point and I go, oh yeah, they've got to somehow magically escape or they've got to somehow discover this clue. And that's usually when the washing up gets done, when I have to go and do something else just to think about it for a bit and go, oh yeah, that's right. Well, they kind of did this earlier and they read this book, so that'll probably be all right. But yeah, you sound like my writing twin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lots of planning. And then when you hit the point where your planning has failed, you you wash up or you go for a walk. This is so wild. It's like uh, listening to writing a book that's something like that I've done loads of times, but I've never done this. I've never, ever done an outline for a book that I've written and I've written six. And I'm beginning to think that (laughs) that's actually, you know, there'd be quite a lot of, a lot of my problems might be solved uh, if I actually had an an outline. I think it just um, depends on like what kind of book you're writing, but also like for some people, like I, I have good friends who say all the only planning they can do is like know the major beat that happens at the midpoint and maybe what the crisis is and everything in that in between they have to improvise. Otherwise for them, there's no joy in writing. Like for them, the joy is of discovering what's going to happen next and coming up with the ideas on the fly and, you know, feeling that creative process as it goes. Whereas for me, I would find that incredibly stressful and not joyful at all. Having the structure there is mm. what allows me to feel joy at least some of the time when I am writing because I feel safe. I know that the pacing will more or less be fine. I know that the structure is solid and I know that I won't have to do major structural edits because if I hate uh, anything, it is the prospect of major structural edits. Uh, so yeah. I, tend to write, I tend to write very clean first drafts. Obviously, They're I my friend. Be- Obviously, I still do quite a lot of revisions. Like I'll do a first pass where I am pulling out certain storylines or enhancing certain character arcs, but it is very, very seldom that I'll have to do something like completely rehaul the timing of a plot or delete an entire chapter or move events around. Uh, And then obviously I'll go through and do, you know, word level edits and things like that. But my books tend to look pretty similar at the end of a first draft as they will with the end product. But I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't spend, you know, a month planning each one. No, I think this is really cool for anyone who, you know, is writing a book now to like listen to, because um, it just goes to show that there are myriad ways of going around writing a book. And, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this one works everyone has it. <laughs> And to back Lucy up, what I started off this whole section of saying was that Agatha Christie had no planning whatsoever. She didn't even know who her own killer was. So Lucy, you're um, following in the footsteps of the greats there by just going, you know what, it'll be fine. (laughs) Um, I have to say that I I haven't written anything as twisty or mysterious as Agatha Christie. So I still hold my hands off and say, I'm not sure how she writes a mystery uh, without planning it out. (laughs) I haven't I haven't read a great deal of Agatha Christie. I actually read a couple just last week because I found them in a secondhand shop and, you know, you're in a secondhand bookshop, you have to buy something. I had very little space in my suitcase, so I just picked up two very small paperback Agatha Christie's uh, and one of them was Peril at End House. And when I was reading it, it felt, you know, very masterful and obviously she knew exactly what she was doing. 
but it was interesting because at the end there was this leftover clue, like this leftover thing that was someone had done that was quite suspicious and could probably have pointed towards them as the murderer. And Hercule Poirot had to be like, oh, this has been weighing on my mind. Why did you do this thing? And the person's like, oh, here's, you know, and just sort of comes up with the justification for why he did it. And Poirot's like, ah, good, yes, that was the only, you know, outstanding thing. I am satisfied now. And in retrospect, that really does come across like Agatha Christie put this in before she had decided who the murderer was and realised at the end that she still had this strange action, this last red herring that had been unexplained and was like, please explain this to me. And the character gave an explanation and she's like, and now the book's done. <laughs> Quite I <love> possibly. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm now going to like take us back to romance because apparently my, you know, designing of this uh, episode was fantasy, romance, fantasy, romance, mysteries, so, romance. No, you, you structured it like my book. We're just going to jump back and forth between the two. Oh, here's a chapter where there's a chase scene through a ship. Oh, here's a chapter where we sit and talk about our feelings. That's fine. That's normal. That's a good book. Yes, you write good books. Uh, that's why you're here. <laughs> But you mentioned earlier like romance being a genre full of tropes and mm-hmm. archetypal characters and the three of us were big fans of tropes because if we weren't, we wouldn't like fantasy or sci-fi or these, you know, very particular subgenres and so on. Are there any kinds of archetypal characters that you find queer romance writers use more frequently than maybe heterosexual romance or you know are are we getting new kinds of romance tropes coming out of this trend for for more and more queer romance novels i don't think there's any particular archetypes that writers of queer romance lean on more than others look i think queer romance is still in its initial flourishing stage it's still relatively young compared to heterosexual romance and so we want to do all the archetypes and all the tropes that haven't been ours yet. Uh, and I think, you know, some tropes from heterosexual romance are, aren't at all inherently gendered. So you can do a grumpy sunshine pairing, for example, with anyone. You know, you can have any combination of genders. It doesn't really matter which one is the grumpy and which one is the sunshine. But some tropes are, and I think that makes them even more appealing on some level to play with. So when I was thinking about Maud and Violet's romance in A Restless Truth, the story tropes there come out of the fact that a rake ingenue story is traditionally quite gendered in its roles. And so I wanted to play with, well, what if they were both women and you have this experienced person with this blushing ingenue? And so on one level I'm doing playing that fairly straight, but then underneath that I also wanted to make it a little bit more complicated and say, well, what if – the rake is not actually the you know, dashing, experienced, very confident person that she likes to present herself as. Uh, and what if the ingenue is actually the one with the charisma and the self-confidence, but it's not quite obvious in how they start to relate to one another. That has to unfold itself throughout the romance. So uh, when you're playing with archetypes, you can do a lot with the fact that there is this huge history of romance to build on. So you can take your pick from archetypes and tropes And then you can say, well, actually, you know, this, I like that this one, it doesn't matter about the genders. And with this trope, I like that there is something gendery happening in it. Let me subvert that. That's interesting. Yeah. I I tend not to think of them 
so much as, as you see, gendery. (laughs) But it's interesting. I mean, I am sort of dying to ask and you can say that you can't say that's okay. But you obviously the first book is MM and the second Mm. book is FF. So what's the third book? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The third book is also MM. Okay. Okay. I was like, what's, what's, what's the pattern going to be? I'm just curious. Uh- <laughs> yeah. It's the, the series as a whole is a little bit palindromic, both in terms of mm-hmm. set, mostly in terms of setting and aesthetic, but also that yeah, it starts off MM, we have an FF book and then we have another MM book. It keeps expanding in terms of the number of people on the page and how en- ensemble the books are. Uh, but obviously we had one book of, magical manor houses set mostly in England. Some of it's in London, you know, conspiracies, wallpaper. Uh, And then we had hijinks on a ship. And with book three, we are back to a lot of stuff to do with magical houses again. Okay. Something to look Mm -hmm. forward to. Uh, (laughs) So so nice, nice little tangent there. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I've just been wondering. I was like, oh, it was MM and FF. What's the third going to be? I was like, oh. (laughs) And look, you know, again, like, and I'm just going to sort of like dance ahead and answer the next question without being asked it. So again, I had to choose what tropes I was going to play with there. And look, there are some historical romance tropes that I love that I just couldn't do because I'm writing queer romance. Like if you're doing straight historical and by straight here, I don't mean heterosexual. I just mean, you know, historical romance. You can't do marriage of convenience. For example, if you have a same sex couple, if you want to do that, then you have to also add in a lot of fantasy world building, make it a secondary world. So um, Foz Meadows' recent fantasy release, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, has a lot of the historical uh, marriage of convenience tropes played really beautifully in a secondary world where people of the same sex can get married. So you can do that if you're working in a fantasy subgenre. You can't do it if you're working just in historical romance. And look, some of the urban fantasy, science fiction romances, like the shifter romance subgenres, are quite gendered sometimes around like mates and this focus on reproduction. You can't really do that with a same-sex couple. But, you know, contemporary queer romances can do pretty much everything from fake dating to age gap to billionaire romance. You can do enemies to lovers. You can do friends to lovers. You can play with pretty much everything. And so when I was looking at what I wanted to do for book three, I think the main the main trope I wanted to play with was enemies to lovers. And then I did a few extra bits that I will leave leave up to people reading book three. There's been so much with what Megan was saying earlier about there's a there's a whole kind of plethora of these books being released. People are coining new terms like morally grey lesbians and disaster bisexuals and stuff like that. And this is becoming it, it kind of has its own discourse on social media. And so because of that, and because there's been, you know, the not just in in fan fiction, but also in like fan art, how novels, you know, are being taken up by fan artists and they're drawing their favorite characters and people are sharing them and talking about this. I wondered whether that sort of growth in that community and these these terms and the popularity of these relationships, does that put any pressure on you as a writer or indeed on any writer to lean more heavily into such tropes like enemies to lovers, for example? 
Well, I can't speak for other writers. For me, because I came from fandom, the books that I write are more or less an extension of the kind of things that I was writing when I was writing fanfic, and I've always been quite um, open about that. And as I said, like I write queer romance because it's what I enjoy reading and because I want to see more queer people having their romances and having those stories in the world. I think, look, we forget that the areas that we inhabit online and in fandom can be a little bit bubbly and don't actually reflect everybody who is reading in a particular genre. And I love that there's this growth of queer science fiction and fantasy. And I think the people who are writing it, they would have been writing it regardless. It's just that now they are getting the book deals and being given a platform. If you're the kind of person who's thinking, oh, you know, this isn't really the the book that I want to write. These aren't the characters who call to me. If you want to just write fantasy that just has heterosexual characters, or you want to write romance that's just heterosexual, the audience is still there and possibly even bigger. And there isn't really a reason not to write that. So it's hard. I've never felt a pressure to write the things that I was going to write anyway. And I don't know what it feels like for somebody who is sitting a bit outside that bubble and saying, should I be doing this? Because I think if you're within the fandom world and you're seeing the fan art and you're seeing the fanfic, these might be the kind of stories that you were going to write anyway. Like as a queer reader, my favorite writers of, let's say, you know, heterosexual historical romance are the ones who do acknowledge the existence of queer people and show them as side characters, being competent and happy. Like I really like the books of Sarah McLean, for example. She only writes heterosexual romance, but she has great ensembles. She has great queer background characters and supporting characters. And I think in her case, that is not coming from, I must appeal to a fan base as I'm acknowledging the diversity that exists in the world. And I think that is the best platform to come from. So I'm not sure if I've answered that in the way that you wanted, but I think it's something that because I exist so heavily within that space, I can't think about it as an outsider might think about it. There are no right or wrong ways to answer. <laughs> I'm just gutted I haven't managed to think of a way to to really shoehorn Yuri on Ice references in here. So oh, I, I was thinking that. And no Star Trek either. Yeah, no, I'm just really struggling to make the Yuri on Ice connection. So instead, I'm just going to say, so Yuri on Ice, huh? Yeah, okay, let's let's talk about that. (laughs) Look, I I am always down to talk about Yuri on Ice. No excuses, no segues needed. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, so uh, listeners, if you're interested, uh, one of the things that I love about just following Freya on social media is also because she's a figure skater and as a figure skater and also fantasy sci-fi genre nerd it's just nice to see someone else out there who has my weird hobby as well um (laughs) and so then I'm just like well we must talk about Yuri on Ice because it's ice kidding and queer romance and wonderful anime and all the wonderful things so yeah that's all I really have to say other than wonderful (laughs) yeah it's so I must be, I've never read a historical sports romance, but there is something so compelling about sports <gasps> romances. And obviously, you know, we're coming from the background of knowing something about figure skating and it being our sport. But I think it really said something that it became this immensely popular anime story. Oh, like yeah. obviously sports anime is a very strong genre. 
And anime has managed to get me to watch things that I would never have watched for. Like I watched three seasons of Haikyuu despite knowing and caring nothing about volleyball when I started. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the sports situation that just is so good for driving a romance because you can have rivalries which are rife with intense emotion and, you know, I have to know everything about this person. I have to know what they do so that I can pit myself against them and I – I have, you know, they take up so much space in your brain. I think a rivalry is a really great background for a romance. And then in Yuri on Ice, you have this semi-rivalry that's got this big helping of idol worship that means you can start a romance where people go into it with preconceptions about who someone is because part of being a sports celebrity means you have this public persona. And one of the things I like about that kind of romance is that the story of the romance is the story of somebody being vulnerable and showing somebody who they are behind the public persona. And Yuri on Ice as a romance has just so many tropes just thrown in by the handful. You've got the, you know, hero worship to finding out who your idol actually is. You have an element of unreliable narration because Yuri is a very unreliable narrator and you're in his head for most of the anime. You have the element of rivalry. You have the shared passion. The shared passion for something I think is such a great basis for romance because you know that the other person's priorities will always to some extent be aligned with yours. And then you have the group project of I am coaching you and we're getting you ready for the Grand Prix. So it's just tropes thrown in by the handful and it's just such a sweet, lovely romance sitting within that. And then it has all the beautiful aesthetics surrounding it of the costumes and you wanting to cheer for this person and when he lands the jump, you want to cheer. And when he falls on the, on the jump in the competition, you feel it in your gut. It's, it's such a great masterclass in audience emotion. I think. Oh, oh man. <laughs> you worked in beautifully. <laughs> okay. But I, I now have a request because you so. Oh, I just want to go and rewatch for you. You're nice now. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> But you've now made me really want to read uh, more like historical romance, well, sport historical romance. So I don't, um, I don't think I've come across a sport historical romance. I well, need somebody is, else to write that for me. No, I think you need to write. You know, we've got what? So next Christmas, I'm going to have book three. Uh, <laughs> so for for 2024, uh, can I put in my request? <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us it's been a real pleasure and i look forward to my christmas read <laughs> and i hope that i feel all the feelings and get a little lovely glowy feeling um like i did with the first book <laughs> oh, thank you for having me on it's been lovely breaking the glass slipper is written and produced by megan lee charlotte bond and lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.